Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought that I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We, we are, are witnesses. witnesses. May, May the, the Lord make, make the woman who is coming into your house, house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and, uh, on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him his name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They called him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amimadab. Amimadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David.
So appreciated your reading again this morning. Seeing you crowded into such a small space almost made me wish we had a larger uh, building, don't you? But for now, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll deal with that. Um, Apollo, Apollo and Lois are a Kenyan couple that I uh, got to know serving with Fellowship International. And uh, they had been, they were born and raised in Kenya, came to Canada to study, and uh, ended up feeling uh, called to ministry. They did theological training here, and then felt God calling them to return, uh, not to Kenya, where there are many churches and, and uh, uh, they might enjoy relative familiarity and comfort, uh, but to the Dem- Democratic Republic of Congo, where they don't face any of those things. Uh, they tell, when, whenever they tell me stories of the people to whom they minister, it makes the hairs in the back of my head stand up, honestly. Uh, they serve primarily people who have either witnessed or experienced uh, rape, torture, uh, civil war, all of the brutalities that come when, with uh, a, a country that is in turmoil. And in the midst of that, they seek to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. I, I, th- I think of all that they, uh, they sacrifice in order to bring comfort to people uh, who are in great pain. Uh, Jay Tucker and his wife Angeline uh, responded to a similar call on their life uh, in 1939. They served faithfully in Congo for some 25 years, but... At that point, civil war broke out, and Jay Tucker was arrested. Uh, He was uh, arrested, he was beaten, and then with hands tied behind his back, he, he, along with 60 others, was thrown into the uh, Bomakande River, uh, where uh, a river infested with crocodiles and a river from which he would never uh, arise. He paid the ultimate price. His friend Morris Platts said to him uh, before he began that journey, spoke to him, trying to convince him not to go, trying to do what he could do to persuade him that this was just not wise, not something he should be involved in. He said, if you go in, you won't come out. But he said, Tucker only replied, God didn't tell me I had to come back out. He only told me I had to go in, and he was faithful to that, uh, that calling that God placed on his life. Remarkably, Jay's wife, Angeline, a year later, went back into that same country into uh, conditions that had uh, stabilized some, and as she joined in the work uh, and continued on in the work there, the church over uh, the coming years would witness thousands upon thousands uh, of, of conversions and, and witnessed God's power and blessing uh, in that place. But their lives for me seem to display this superhuman level of sacrifice, uh, just a, a level of devotion that is at the very least unusual, but it's almost inexplicable. I look at their lives and think of the, the tiny little sacrifices that I often will struggle with in doing the things that I feel God calling me to do. And their, their lives and, and their sacrifices are uh, a powerful 
uh, testimony to me. Today we're coming to the end of our series in the book of Ruth. And as we do, we are, uh, we've been learning lessons from a love story. We've been seeing how uh, Naomi has returned from Moab and her daughter-in-law Ruth has, has followed her with a sense of devotion, even though neither of them will know what they will face when they arrive. Uh, we've seen how uh, Ruth, the Moabite, has, has blessed her, her mother-in-law. And last time we saw her make this daring uh, marriage proposal to Boaz and seen uh, his response to her. But this is, this, we come to this last chapter and we see the theme of sacrifice. And the chapter speaks of the sacrifices that God calls us to, uh, as, well as, the, as well as inspiring us with the sacrifices that God has made for us. So if you haven't already, turn with me to uh, Ruth chapter 4, and I will uh, attempt to walk us through and explain this passage that has been read to us by our, uh, our readers this morning. Now, it starts by giving us the anatomy of someone who wouldn't pay the price. And because the fact is that not everybody is like uh, Apollo and Lois. Not everybody uh, pays the price the way Jay Tucker and his wife Angeline did. This passage shows us why, someone, why some people will not pay the price, though. It shows us why people uh, will hold back when, when there's an opportunity that involves sacrifice. Now, last time we saw the widow Ruth, we saw her make that marriage proposal to Boaz. We saw him respond. But when she did, we said it wasn't just a marriage proposal. She asked him to also be her redeemer. And that was technical language for invoking a law in ancient Israel whereby he would take on the responsibility of not only caring for her mother-in-law, but uh, redeeming her property and, in, and also providing her with an heir. Uh, that, that idea of carrying on the family line and providing for, uh, providing for the inheritance was, was incredibly important to uh, people in, in ancient Israel, particularly because they had received a portion of the land uh, from, from God and, and they were to do everything they could to keep that portion of the land from falling into other people's hands. I, I met a man in Japan who the circumstances were, were different but still very similar. He had met a woman and uh, they, had, they had begun dating and they'd become serious thinking of marriage and the father-in-law sat him down for the talk and said, my, I only have one child, and my daughter is the last one left to continue on my line. And he asked him, as many uh, Japanese fathers will do in this situation, he asked the husband, will you take my name uh, and uh, carry, on, uh, carry on my line? And so... Uh, uh, Whereas most Japanese women would take um, their husband's name, this, this Japanese husband took his wife's name in order to continue the, the family line. Here there's something, something similar to that going on, but with, with far more wider implications for, for, for property and for, for, for an heir. So Ruth had made this offer and this uh, invitation to become his redeemer to become her mother-in-law's redeemer and to, uh, to uh, accept a, a proposal of marriage. But 
although he was eager to respond to that, he, he revealed some information that up until this point, nobody else knew. He said, I'm willing to do this, but there's someone closer. There is a closer kinsman than me. And so uh, with the law of the Redeemer, it goes in order of blood relation and how close you are to, uh, to the person that needs to be redeemed. And so he said, there's one more person that we need to speak with first. And so chapter four opens up with, with the re- resolution. How, how is this all going to be decided? In chapter four, the scene opens at the city gate. And the city gate functioned as like a, a mini city hall. That was where the, the elders would gather. That's where um, cases would be tried. That's where disputes would be settled. Joaz, uh, Boaz has found the relative, and he's gathered 10 elders to deliberate over the transaction. He tells the man about his widowed relative, Naomi, and in verse 4, he asks him, would you buy the land? Her husband, Elimelech, had likely sold the rights to the land. You remember in chapter 1, we saw how Elimelech and Naomi had fled Bethlehem and headed to Moab because there had been a famine in the land. So when they left, they had likely looked at, looked at their, their prospects, said, our money's run out, our field isn't producing anything, we need to get out of here or we will not survive. So they had likely sold the rights to their land, taken the proceeds to that they got, taking them to begin a new life in in Moab where they had been told that there there were uh, better conditions for agriculture. And yet, while they had experienced some short-term relief, things didn't go well. Uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. Her two sons died. And now she has returned penniless with with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and so not only do they not have any money, now they've rented out their land and they're facing those, uh, those prospects. So the invitation is for the nearest relative to buy it back, essentially to uh, relief, re, uh, release her from um, uh, similar to bankruptcy. So the offer is made to this redeemer, the closest relation, and he finds about it. And he says he will, he will purchase it. He's willing to take it on. It's a good deal for him because by paying a little bit of money to purchase this land, he'll be seen as a little bit of a philanthropist in town. He's helping out. He's, he's coming to the aid of this widow. He's, he's uh, doing something that's good. But the best part about this deal is while providing for the widow, he will, he, he will do so with the recognition she doesn't have any children and she's too old to have children now. And so when Naomi passes, the land will, be, will uh, revert to his and while he will keep it, in the, uh, keep, keep it all in, in the clan's possession, it becomes his inheritance to pass on. So for a very little um, sacrifice on his part, he gets a big return and it will uh, be to, to, his, to his game. He could look generous while doing something that was ultimately for his own benefit. And it's a picture of what's coming. It's, it's a, uh, to help us compare what's coming later with what he did. Because so often, people will give something in order to get something in return. Even things that appear to be noble and good and generous, ultimately, when we look at the finer print of the details, you find out, 
wow, the person seemed to be doing something really good and noble, but it turns out they were doing it mostly for their own benefit. So he initially gladly agrees to the sale. But then Boaz tells him about Ruth. There's a little fine print going on here. You don't just get the field, you also get a wife. And this isn't just any wife. You, in marrying, in marrying uh, Ruth, he would be expected to uh, pass on his firstborn son would be, would be uh, essentially uh, being given over to Naomi. He would take Elimelech's name and he would then become the heir of this, uh, of this field and all of her assets and property. And so now, now we're seeing a situation where he's not only buying someone back from bankruptcy, but having paid that huge sacrifice, it's not going to be um, eventually ending up on his asset line. It's going to be handed over to Naomi and the, and the child that would be born uh, on her behalf. At that point, he bows out and says, I'm out of this. You, you know, Boaz, you, you take over. I'm, I'm not interested anymore. It's interesting, though, the language that he uses to do that. In verse 6, he says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. And then later in the verse, he says, take my right, right of redemption yourself, for I, I cannot redeem it. Like just a couple of verses earlier, when he saw that it was going to benefit him and to be to his own um, long-term financial uh, uh, benefit, he didn't have any problem whatsoever coming up with the funds to do it. But now that he finds out it's going to revert over to someone else, he's like, whoa, I'm, I can't do it. This is impossible. This is like, I, I'm, I'm, I just can't, couldn't possibly do this. It involves some sacrifice, and somehow it's become impossible. He gives a reason, of course, because he says it might cut into my inheritance. It's going to affect his RSPs, and at that point, he says, count me out. It's interesting that he says that he can't do it, though, right? There are some things that we genuinely cannot do, and we shouldn't do them, because we, they, are, they are, given all that's going on, they are actually impossible. But so often we do what this man did, and it's not that we can't do them, it's just that we don't want to do them. So often God will ask something of us, and instead of saying, I'm not willing to do that, instead we say, I can't do it. I'm just not capable of doing that. That's, this is just impossible. My hands are tied. Nothing can be done. We say to ourselves that we can't serve. We just don't have time to pray. We say we can't witness. We can't, we can't share our faith. We can't lead. We can't tithe. We can't give. Just, I'm just helpless. I can't do it. When the reality is so often that like this man, it's not a question of can't. It's more a question of won't. It involves a sacrifice, and so we just don't want to. And so we say we can't. It's interesting how this passage comments on a life of no sacrifice. In verse 1, we heard Boaz telling the relative, turn aside, turn aside friend, friend, sit down here. But that's not exactly what the Hebrew text says. If you have a King James Version, you can sense that the translator's 
were kind of scratching their heads, struggling how to put this into English. Because the King James reads, Ho, such a one, which is actually a fairly literal translation, but I I defy anyone who can tell me what that actually means, right? Ho, such a one, nobody knows what that means, right? In this case, probably the the most uh, accurate or uh, understandable uh, in getting to the actual meaning of this verse comes in uh, the Net Bible. The Net Bible says, come here and sit down, John Doe. And the point is that in the, in the text, what they're trying to do, in the very place where you would put the person's name, it is omitted. And it just says, such a person. Some, it, it's it's uh, inserting a, a filler where you would where you'd either refer to the person's name or their title or some, some way of, of graciously speaking with someone. It's like calling him what's-his-face. It's like calling him John Doe, hey you. Um, and the point is that either to protect the, uh, uh, pr- protect the, the descendants of this man who wouldn't step up and pay the price, either to protect them from embarrassment or to make a commentary that someone who, when offered an opportunity to step up make a sacrifice, do the right thing. When that person says, no, I can't do it. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to do the right thing. It's almost as if saying, that person deserves no name. They have their honor, in a sense, uh, robbed from them that way. And so you, you have that sense of, uh, of, uh, of, of that going on here. His life is a reminder of what Jesus would later say in Mark 8.35, where he said, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And so the question before us as we look at this man who didn't pay the price is to honestly to search our hearts and ask, Am I that John Doe? Am I living like what's-his-face? Am I the person who, when provided an opportunity, I don't step up? I don't sacrifice? I don't do those things which I know God wants me to do, but if it involves a cost, I'm out. The scripture calls us to a higher standard than that. Boaz gives us an example of someone who did pay the price, someone who was willing to gladly sacrifice when given an opportunity. When what's-his-face passes on the opportunity, Boaz gladly steps in and takes on even more than than would be expected of him. When he says in verse 8 to Boaz, buy it for yourself, Boaz gladly does. Now, having uh, having offered uh, to buy it in verse 9, he he buys back all of Naomi's land. Uh, And again, here it's like her home has been repossessed She's in bankruptcy protection. He steps, off, steps in, pays off all of her creditors, and the estate is, is freed for her. It, it would have been costly, and having gotten it back, he knows again that it'll be passed on to her heir. He'll take a big hit financially, but he knows, hey, this is the right thing to do. It will cost me something, I realize, but I, I, I can make this sacrifice. 
having redeemed the land in verse 9, now in verse 10, he also redeems Ruth. And it's interesting what we've learned and what we haven't learned about Ruth so far in this story. As I see it, we've learned two things. We've seen her stellar character. Boaz has been impressed by her diligence and her faithfulness, her her devotion to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so her, her faith and her character have been held up in this story. And the only other thing we've learned about her is that she's from Moab. This is, diff- this is interesting because many other prominent women in the Bible, there are often comments on their appearance. Uh, you've, you've got uh, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, all of the wives of the patriarchs, for whatever reason, the scripture goes out of their way to say, hey, these were beautiful women. Oh, she was beautiful. Oh, she was beautiful too. And yeah, the, all the guys were attracted. She was beautiful. With Ruth, there's no mention anything of her appearance. All that we know is that she had stellar character. She was great in faith. And she was from Moab. That's important because I think the, what, this, what the um, author wants to, to remind us of is that there wasn't, there wasn't anything other than her, her character in it for Boaz. He entered into this marriage knowing that the stakes would be high. Mentioning the fact that she was Boaz, uh, which, that she was from Moab, was important because he was a rich man. He was a powerful man. He had people working for him. And in an honor uh, honor-aware, uh, honor-rich uh, society that like, they were living in, he would be expected to marry well. He would be expected to, buy, to, to marry someone who would elevate his status, that would be appropriate for his status. But in marrying a woman who was a widow from Moab, he would be marrying the woman who had, in his world, the, the lowest status of, uh, uh, of anyone he knew. He'll be marrying the outsider. And he knows that it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost him in terms of his status, in terms of his honor, and yet he knows it's the right thing to do. And he gladly takes on uh, that responsibility. Perhaps the biggest cost to Boaz comes in his commitment to provide Naomi with an heir, though. In verse 10, he states his commitment to carry on Elimelech's family line. And what that'll mean practically for him is that his firstborn son will essentially become Naomi's son. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be his mother-in-law's son. Or more importantly, uh, it'll become Elimelech's uh, heir and line. To spend nine months waiting for a child and then in, in essence to hand that child uh, over. In a sense to to see that child grow up in the town and everyone calling him by another name, recognizing that he's technically somebody else's child. He knows it's going to take an emotional toll on him, and yet he knows it's the right thing to do, and he gladly pays the price. When you think of the price Boaz paid as a redeemer, when you think of the financial cost, when you think of the, the, the status cost, the emotional cost that he paid, it kind of puts some of our appeals for people to help out and take a turn in the nursery or, or serve as an usher, kind of puts some of those things in perspective, right? Like compared to the tiny little things that God will 
ask of us to do little sacrifices of our lives. Boaz's life is really held up for us here as something to, to, to point us to the life that we were, we were called to live. When we see Boaz, for instance, giving up his firstborn son, it, it puts the Bible's call to tithing in perspective. Like so many things that we look at in our day-to-day lives and say, well, oh, I couldn't do that. That would involve cost and sacrifice. And, and we look at his life and we think, wow, I, he's given so much of himself. Interestingly, the book of Ruth doesn't at this point turn and say how, how tough it was for Boaz. It doesn't describe how he struggled with all of these decisions that he had taken on. In fact, it doesn't tell us anything else about Boaz's life other than how much he was blessed. In verse 11, the people proclaim a blessing on Boaz's wife and ask that she be like Rachel and Leah. He, they ask that, they, they pray this blessing over him because Rachel and Leah were the two women whom God blessed and made fruitful, that they would build up the house of Israel and provide those 12 sons that would become the 12 tribes of Israel. They realize that Boaz might have, might have what he might have lost in giving up his firstborn, and they pray, God, repay this man over and over again for his sacrifice. The people also proclaim a blessing on, Moses, on Boaz's honor and fame. They know what he's giving up socially, and they say, this is the way normally, we know that the way normally things work is people with high status, they look for someone who's going to increase that status all the more. He's not done that. Bless him for it. Raise his honor, not just so that he will have uh, a... Uh, a, a pride and ego that will go along with that, but so that people in Israel will look to Boaz and say, that's the way it's supposed to be done. That's the way we're supposed to live. Finally, in verse 12, they pray that his house will be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. See, Tamar was another non-Jew who made a bold, uh, a, a bold move in order to continue on the line of Judah. And God blessed that bold move and, and uh, protected the, the, the line of Judah. They knew the sacrifices Boaz had made to his estate for the sake of Naomi, and they said, bless this man for those sacrifices. Pour out your, your grace on him for all that he's done. And then maybe the greatest honor comes to Boaz when Ruth gives birth to a son. The women bring him to Naomi, and they name him Obed. And this is really unusual because usually the father names the son. But they don't say, hey, Boaz, can you do this? No, they're taking the son from him, giving him to Naomi, and Naomi's husband has died. So they decide, we'll name the son. We'll name him. And they give him the name Obed, which means one who serves. They give him that name because they've seen in the father, they've seen in Boaz, that ultimate example of service, sacrifice. They've seen in the mother, Ruth, the, the, the devotion that came in her serving her mother-in-law, serving uh, to, uh, at great personal cost to herself. And they said, this child, may he be just like that to you, Naomi. In the same way that God has, has served you through Boaz, he's served you through Ruth, as he has served you throughout this entire ordeal, may this son that is born to you be just like that. 
Do you know the blessing of that kind of sacrifice? Do you know the, the joy of serving? Has anybody offered to name their firstborn son one who serves because they have seen the kind of dedication and sacrifice in your life? Boaz paid a high price to redeem Naomi. And that price was intended to, to uh, lift up a model. But his life ultimately points to the one who paid the ultimate price. The story isn't intended to lift up Boaz and say, wow, what a great guy. He must have just been great. The story is intended to lift up Boaz as God and to see what should happen in the life of someone who has experienced the redemption that only can come through him. He learned this sacrificial service from his God. The Israelites were given the Redeemer laws in, as a reflection of how God had, had worked in their lives to, to redeem them from slavery in Egypt. In Exodus 6.6, God says, I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. See, God had paid the price to release the, uh, the Israelites from their bondage. He had paid the price to humble Pharaoh, and he had continued to do that in their lives. Uh, this book of Ruth is set in the, in the time of the judges, and it was a time where everyone was doing right in their own eyes and, and continuing to bring on the, the, the consequences of sin that, that go along with that. Every time they'd find themselves in a mess, they'd cry out to God, and God in his faithfulness would deliver them. He'd have mercy on them. He was faithful to them and he was faithful to redeem them. But what happened over time in the history of Israel, they came to realize their greatest bondage wasn't to Egypt. It was to the sin of their own hearts. They realized what all humans realize is that it's the enemy inside their hearts that is, in fact, the greater evil. They began to feel a need for redemption from not some foreign power, but they needed redemption from the sin of their own hearts. They weren't so much fearing the, the, the threat of their name being cut off from the earth the way Naomi was, but for their name being blotted out of the book of life. And so they called again for a redeemer. God heard their prayers and he promised to send them a redeemer. In Isaiah 59, 20, God declared, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. God promised to provide them the redeemer that they longed for, a redeemer who would provide a rescue from the power of sin and the bondage of sin, someone who would pay for the consequences of sin. But it was to all who would turn from transgression, all who would look to God with repentant hearts. The problem is, who would they find to pay that kind of price? Boaz was kind of stood out as this, this oasis in a, in a sea of people who, at the time, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Boaz is this example of self-sacrifice and love. Where would you find a guy who would not just do that for a widow, but who had the capacity to do that for the sins of the whole world? 
Then Jesus came. He came as the son of Boaz, the son of Jesse, the son of David. He said in Mark 10.45 that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came as the ultimate Boaz, the ultimate redeemer. He paid the ultimate price with his own life. And he died to set you and I free. So 1 Peter 1.18 declares, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you. Jesus didn't just reach into a bank account that had a little bit extra and come up with some change to pay the price. It says he paid it with his own blood. God so loved you that he sacrificed his only son for you. He gave his very life for you. And because he paid everything, our redemption, like Naomi's, is free. It's held out as a gift from God. If you don't know Jesus' free redemption, then sacrifices of my friends Apollo and Lois don't, don't make any sense. If you don't know Jesus' free redemption, then Jay Tucker, he died in the Bomokande River for nothing, really. Just seemed like a, maybe a selfless thing to do, but ultimately a foolish thing to do. If you don't know Jesus' free redemption, then you don't make sacrifices to give, to serve, to do the things that you know that God is calling you to do. You live in protection mode. Ultimately, if we don't know Jesus' redemption, we live trying to hold on. We live like what's-his-face. We live doing things that'll get us a return, but when there's a cost involved, we step back. But that's no way to live. And that's what this verse here calls the empty way of life. That way of life has been handed down to all of us. We've seen it. We we live in, in the midst of it. But the scriptures say that's the life that Jesus died to free us from. That's what he came to liberate us from, that we might be truly free. Let's look to Jesus Christ and walk in the fullness of the inheritance that he died to provide us for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you were willing to pay the price. It'd be one thing if you were willing to pay the price for faithful people and loving people and moral people. But you were willing to pay the price for us as sinners. Thank you for not sparing your only son. Thank you for others who have sacrificed to tell us the good news. Thank you, Father, for others who have served us so faithfully when we needed them. Help us to pay the price for others. Help us to sacrifice to serve them. And help us to give that others might hear as we live with the hope of our inheritance in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name.